Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. LeadSA.co.za Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you like knowing, the brain is for you. If you like a challenge, the brain is for you. If you like to Google yourself once a month, the brain is even for you. Get to our website for more info and you could be the brain. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. 25 minutes before 10, and it is that time of the week. One of my favorite times on radio, actually. And we'll be speaking to the naked scientist, as we always do. Super clever man with that lovely, placid accent of his. And, um, of course, he'll be taking all our questions. So you can call in anything you have scientific-related. This man knows so much. He's super knowledgeable. And um, I know that you love hearing him every week as well. So do call in and let us know your questions. If you're on the Cape Town area, Western Cape, 021-446-0567, or Ian Gauteng on 011 Or you can SMS your thoughts or questions to 31567 31702. You're listening to 567 Cape Talk and Talk Radio 702. And uh, we have on the line, hi Chris. Hello. Are you well? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. It's all right. I'm surviving the winter. Ah. How about you? I don't have to survive any more of you English winters. I had about four <laughs> winters of discontent before coming back to South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I want a job where I can have summertime here because allegedly there is one and then summertime in a decent country like I don't know South Africa would be really quite nice because then I could have nice weather and I could have nice wine and when the weather started to get cold I'd come back here again well you should be booking your ticket you've just given yourself a convincing argument I just need a job I just need a way of doing that and uh, then I could have <laughs> the, the, the world's best existence I think it would be perpetually summer where are you based I see that you are at that other place <laughs> well, yes, um, I came to Cambridge University when I was a student doing medicine and never really left. And so I now live just outside Cambridge, which if you have a map of England, Cambridge is about 50 miles, 80 kilometres north of London. Yeah, and, uh, I, I used to, straight line dead north I of used to go there occasionally um, when I was at Oxford myself. And um, your place was definitely prettier, but not as exciting. <laughs> well, you know, they all say that, but we know which one's best, really. Well, let's get stuck in. I was reading the the story that you've sent us, which is quite a fascinating one from the from the cow's stomach, as it were. Yeah. Um, well, the interesting thing about this is there's a little bit of background, which is that we want to find ways of turning rubbish into fuel, because that way we can reduce global carbon emissions from fossil fuels because we're using renewable sources. Yes. Now, one very big pot potential source of renewable energy is the stuff we throw away in the form of plant waste mm. because there are lots of things that we grow that as humans, we just can't digest them, so we don't eat them, and we end up chucking them on the compost heap or into landfill and places like that where other microbes that do have the genetic know-how to attack mm. them do break them down and the energy is wasted. Mm. So if we could find an industrial process which will liberate the energy from these woody bits of plants, the cellulose, mm. then we'd have a potentially very, very big source of energy which we could turn into bioethanol. Mm. 
Now, one of the big stumbling blocks in doing this, though, is where do you get the, the genetic know-how yeah. to enable you to do that? And what a group of researchers have published in the journal Science this week, it's Matthias Hess, who's in Berkeley, in California, and his colleagues. They have gone straight to the horse's mouth, or in this case, the cow's <laughs> stomach, to find the solution. And it, this is intriguing. They took two cows... They made a, what's called a fistula, which is a, a, port of, a portal of entry, into the rumen of these two cows. Mm. They implanted a nylon bag, so in other words, a, a bit like a string vest, but with grass in it, into the cow for 72 hours. They then withdrew the grass and looked at what microbes had colonised the grass they'd put in there from the cow's stomach and begun to attack it. Then they asked, well, what genes are those microbes using to attack this grass? Mm. They actually found two and a half million gene sequences when they looked by PCR. And then they asked, well, which of these genes, when they looked at the genetic sequence, which of these genes could potentially attack cellulose, the woody stuff, yeah. and carbohydrates in general? And they homed it in on about 28,000 genes, mm. and then they picked 90 of them, expressed them, in other words, made the gene products in other bacteria, mm. and then tested those proteins, the enzymes that were coming out of this, against a spectrum of different chemicals which you would find in plant waste. Mm. Over half of them were active. Many of them also active in the context of other chemicals that you would want to use when extracting energy and ethanol from plant waste. So they're saying this is a really neat way to go and find a solution to an industrial and human problem by looking at how nature has already solved the problem mm. and then applying it. So now they've got these genes, they can begin to ask, well, which ones work best? How are they doing the chemistry that they're doing, the, the enzymes these genes make? Can we copy it and make it better? That is absolutely fascinating. And it also helps to, to give the cows a little bit of a more green rep for all their own contributions towards greenhouse emissions. Quite. And in fact, cows belch and fart methane. They also produce a prodigious amount of CO2. Yes. And they probably account for about 20% of the anthropogenic emissions, in other words, man-made yeah, greenhouse gas emissions across the whole planet. Because one physicist mm. I spoke to a few years ago called Alan Calvert, who's a physics consultant in England, he said, well, if we wanted to solve at least part of the climate change problem overnight, then we should all go vegetarian because every person eats about their own weight in meat every year in dry weight of meat and that means that because of the rearing cycle there's roughly three times the human population in terms of weight terms of animals being reared on the earth and if you calculate how much co2 they're producing it's a pretty large amount mm, absolutely fascinating and some fascinating questions for you too and uh, let's go to bruderstrom and speak to tessa hi tessa good morning um, um, I have read somewhere that uh, Jean Doucet, winner of the Nobel Prize in Medicine, has said that Olivia Amison has discovered the treatment of addiction by the use of the drug Baclofen, B-A-C-L-O-F-E-N, which is apparently harmless and has so no side effects. And this sounds to me an incredible breakthrough for alcoholism. Hello, Tessa. Hello. Um, scientists have been looking at the science of addiction for a very long time. And because obviously it's such a big problem amongst humans, why people get hooked on things. Yes. They want to know what the neurological circuitry of it is. And one of the ways in which they've looked is to ask, well, what changes in the brain when someone gets hooked on something or does something which is associated with drug taking or an addictive behaviour? Yeah. 
and it turns out that what drugs are doing is subverting the part of the brain which we use for rewarding ourselves. And you need this part of the brain because otherwise how would you reinforce, how would you encourage good behaviours? So when you go and uh, you're hungry and you go and find something to eat and you eat it and you feel good, that reward is, ah, oh, I feel good, I've got a full stomach now. And that sparks off the release of various chemicals in the brain making you feel better. And that reinforcing behaviour is absolutely critical to learning. What drugs are doing is subverting that system. And it's about a chemical called dopamine. And in the core of your brain, in a region called the nucleus accumbens, you have a very strong density of dopamine nerves or nerve endings. And when you do something that's good, you squirt some dopamine out in that region and it makes you feel very happy. And because you feel happy, you're then more likely to do the thing that made you happy again. But what drugs do is they make the brain make that dopamine when you haven't actually done anything that's good. And so the thing that becomes reinforced is taking the drug or doing the thing that's bad in the first place, whether it's gambling or drinking or taking other things. Mm. So what scientists want to do is to find a way of interrupting those circuits that are doing that, but doing it selectively. Because if you're not careful, if you just abolish that circuit en bloc, take the whole lot away, then how do you learn and reward people for doing the good things, like you're thirsty and you drink? If you don't get a reward for drinking some water, then you're going to dehydrate yourself to death. So there's no simple answer. If it was as simple as baclofen, which is a drug which has been around for a very long time, and it does have a few side effects because of the way it works on the brain's inhibitory nerve transmitter systems, um, then we'd all, we'd all be uh, very, very free from addiction, but we're not. Mm. Um, but it's certainly an area of fertile yeah. exploration. Absolutely. Hi there, Fatima and Mayfair. Yes, hi, uh, Eusebius. Um, what I wanted to know is a friend of mine's husband was uh, tested HIV positive and she was negative on the rapid test. And then they did the ELISA and she was still negative. So they did the Western blot, which was uh, which is a very advanced test and inconclusive that if you're positive, you're positive. And three years later, when she went and got tested, she was negative on the Western blot. Okay. Chris? How do you explain that? So, Fatima, can I just make sure I've got this right? So, they did the first line test and it was negative? Yes. They did a when second line test. they did it with te- her husband. He was positive, she was negative. Then right, they so hang on, let me the- make sure I've got this right. So, the husband, they tested him and he was positive. And the wife was negative. And the wife was always negative. No, she was negative on the ELISA, negative on the rapid test. But when they did the Western blot, which I'm sure you are aware of, Yep. Uh, she tested positive. And they did the Western blot again, and she tested positive again. But four years later, she had another HIV test, and it was po- it was negative. It was all negative. It was yep. all negative. Yeah, okay. Um, and is, is her husband definitely positive. HIV positive? Yes, He's he definitely is HIV positive. He's definitely okay, le- let me just summarise exactly what we've been talking about so everyone understands this, because... Um, when we do HIV or any test for anything like a blood-borne virus, hepatitis B or C or HIV, if we do one test, there's a high likelihood that we'll make a mistake because not every test is perfect. Tests have grey areas 
either in the positive domain or the negative domain where they make mistakes in certain circumstances. So you never rely on one test alone. So in our laboratory, for example, we do a first-line test which is very, very sensitive. It's much more likely to call you positive and mm. make a mistake calling you positive than make a mistake calling you negative. So it won't miss any. Mm. If we find positives, we then do a second test which is... Uh, very much more specific. It's much less likely to make a mistake and say you're positive when you're not. And then that third line test, your Western blot test, as you're calling it, mm -hmm. that's looking for specific antibodies that you make against the virus. Mm. But no test is perfect. And I think what could have happened in this lady, one very likely explanation is that there's something in her blood that tripped over that Western blot, that very, very good test, mm. which is very, very reliable. It may have just tripped it up on those couple of occasions. And then whatever that was in her blood, went away and it stopped doing it and I do occasionally you know I've in fact two weeks ago I saw a patient um, with exactly the same thing and in the end when we retested this person um, we found that they were negative the other possibility is she may be one of these very rare people who in some way manages to eliminate HIV from the body but the fact that the other two tests were negative at that time counts against that so I think it's much more likely she had something in her blood at the time that was tripping up mm. that western blot that very sensitive very specific test and made it call a positive when it wasn't really I think that's what you would call a false positive we are with Chris Smith the naked scientist and we're going to answer more of your questions right after this hi there Wendy oh, good morning um, I'd like to uh, find out how we've been watching a brood of peacock chicks grow up and they're now about four months old, and they're starting to get colour in their feathers. How does that happen? Hello, Wendy. Morning, um, Chris. Well, the... Uh, answer is, if you look at those feathers, you'll see that they have this extraordinary iridescence to them. Um, peacock feathers have that beautiful blue but it's not a static color when you rotate the feather or look at it from different directions you'll see that it's in fact whole f whole sort of barrages of color hitting your eye and this is because the feathers are not pigmented it's not in the same way that you would um have hair color some con some aspects of the feather color is actually what we call structural color and the birds are masters of arranging different molecules relative to each other in such a way that they reflect certain wavelengths of light and when those wavelengths of light come off the feather they interfere with each other what that means is that you reflect some wavelengths of light from different layers within the feather and when they map onto each other the waves cancel each other out in some places or add up to make brighter colors in others and that's what gives those extraordinary colors it's a similar phenomenon to when you have water with a drop of oil added to the top and you see a rainbow effect on the top of the water because the oil spreads out to make very thin layers but which are more than one layer thick so some some areas will be several molecules excuse me several molecules deep others will be thinner and when the light comes in it reflects off these different layers differently maps back onto itself and in some places gets brighter some places gets dimmer for different colors and you see this iridescent effect so what they're doing is they're arranging the structure of the feather so that or the colored bits of the feather in some cases not all um, so that they reflect different bits of the light like that and you see different colors Fascinating. Lance in Santon. Hi, Lance. Hi, guys. <coughs> Chris, morning. I've got two questions. The, the first one is, how do I get to intern for you? <laughs> and, the <second laughs> one is, and the second one is, um, I read an article that apparently in 2012, Beetlejuice is going to go supernova, and for about six weeks, we're going to have two suns in the sky. Uh, and I, I'd actually just like to get your take on that and just hear the background. 
Hello, Lance. Um, actually, we do have an internship program, actually. Um, in yeah. fact, we're looking for people to apply for it right now. So if you yeah, go no, to nakedscientist.com, um, then you, you, can, uh, you can see the details. Thanks. I think, um, I, think, I think my wife would kill me, though, yeah. <laughs> well, you can come for a little while. It's yeah. worth it, isn't it? To come and yeah. work here for a bit with us would be great, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> Okay, job recruitment over. Um, Betelgeuse <laughs> is a very bright star in the sky, very close to the Earth, and it has swollen up to become very, very large. And you're right, it is soon going to become uh, a supernova. It's got to the stage where it's going to blow itself to pieces. I don't think it's going to be in 2012, though. I think the suggestion is in the next mm, few hundred years, possibly. But it will be incredibly bright. Um, I don't know if it'll be as bright as our own sun, but certainly very, very bright. You'll see this incredibly bright light in the sky, which is this star puffing itself up and then blasting itself to pieces, to smithereens. Um, and obviously it's going to be a, a wonderful gift for astronomers because um, they will be watching this and they'll be able to learn a huge amount about what goes on when a star does end its life in this way. And it's a very important step because none of us would be here were it not for the birth and death of stars in billions of years gone by in the universe because stars have in their cores, uh, in some cases um, of very big stars, they make inside the star all the complex elements, or many of the complex elements that we're made of, in other stars, and, and including enormous stars, when they blow themselves up and go supernova, they also have reaction uh, conditions that are so extreme, they can fuse smaller elements together to make much bigger chemicals. And so all the elements in our body have come from the birth and death of stars in that way. So we, we're all children of stars, quite literally. And so understanding this process is crucial to our understanding of where we all came mm, from. Yeah. So astronomers study this to see how the process works. And Betelgeuse will offer, quite literally, our next nearest neighbour mm. doing this for our viewing pleasure. Absolutely. So, uh, so don't stack out the foil head just yet. No, but I, I think the... The, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure people have said that there's a time window of a, a couple of hundred years at least yet that this is likely to happen. It's certainly been growing, um, getting very, very big and bright um, over the time that astronomers have been able to observe from the Earth. And that means going back a, a hundred years, two hundred years or so. Um, but I don't think it's tomorrow or, or even next year that it's going to pop. But I think it's pretty imminent. Okay, thanks for that question, Lance. Let's go to Nanette in Pretoria. Um, good morning, gentlemen. My question is, on Grey's Anatomy on Monday night, there's uh, this medical program. They treated a man that was covered in warts in his face and neck, terrible looking. But his hands was covered in like a bone type, I don't know what it is, but it looked horrible, which they show how they cut it off and tried to get these things off his hands. And the reason why I'm asking is because the same person was showed in another program called Nip and Tuck in December. Um, my question is, is this really a condition? Does it exist? What is it all about? <laughs> okay, thanks for that. Courtesy of Grey's Anatomy so and Nip and Tuck. You're <laughs> saying that uh, the man was covered in some kind of warts or something? Yes, his whole face and neck, terrible-sized yeah. warts and moles. Yeah, it, it sounds actually, um, they probably weren't warts, because if his hands had funny bony or odd-looking deformities as well, it's more likely to be a condition called neurofibromatosis. And this is a... Uh, genetic condition, it's caused by an overgrowth of, or it's caused by a damage to a gene which causes certain cell groups to grow too much and you get these polyps on the skin and they, they cause these growths, they look like warts but they're blobs and bulges on the skin and actually it can be linked to another problem which is that you get neuromas, tumours 
inside your head and some people get deafness because mm. they get an acoustic neuroma. They get a, a growth of a benign tumour around the nerve that carries signals from the ear into the brainstem. Okay. And so the first thing they often know about this is that they can go deaf. Mm. Um, but it's a condition called neurofibromatosis and there's That's two different forms, NF1 and NF2. So it probably yeah. was one of those. That's all we have time for, but I could listen to you the whole day. Chris, thanks so much for joining us again. You certainly well, thank make you very science much for cool. Me. Yeah.